out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Tell Bryant, drummer, whose career is quite extraordinary. He's been with Pete Murphy with the band in the late 80s, early 90s, the 100 Men they became known as, um, and then worked with another progressive band called Iona, but has done, well, over a thousand recording sessions and more than 50 world tours and worked with an amazing amount of people, including Peter Gabriel, Body Frame, Faith Hill, Maddie Pryor. There's hundreds, I'm not going to read them all out. Anyway, look, this is the interview. It's fabulous, so make notes, I will test you at the end. Um, and after several minutes, quite a lot of minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. Anyway, tell. It's over to you. Yeah, well, I, I was born in 61, and I got my... I started to get an interest in playing drums very early on. Eight, I was about eight years old, eight or nine years old. My father was a... He's passed away now, but he was a real love music lover you know he had a very broad music um musical taste he, he you know he was he was in business but um and he'd got himself a really nice stereo system which you know dad with a big nice flashy stereo <laughs> back in the you know late 60s 70s and um i had i get i think when i've thought about it i've got three sisters and no brothers and my, and and the music my dad we wouldn't there was no sports interest in sports in our household and i think the music was in many ways the way i connected with my own dad and uh i looked to him and his musical taste and he talked about it and then i picked up the drumsticks at you know at school and um and I wasn't a very good student. My parents were both uh, semi, or kind of arty folk as well. Uh, and um, weren't, you know, there was never any pressure sort of formality to sort of leave school and become something professional. Right. It was always like, find your path in life, do what you kind of do. There was, it was a bit of that sort of uh, uh, aspect to my background from both sides and and um, when I, I basically left school at 16 with a not not a focused career idea because that 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 wasn't even I had no idea what that would look like yeah and and let's and let's remember back in those days there wasn't the kind of academic route for young musicians in in contemporary music in rock and roll and pop and stuff there wasn't the rock schools and the Academy of Contemporary Music and Guildhall and those places. They weren't doing pop music back then. Mm. So unless you had a music teacher who was into some contemporary form, you were find you had to find your own path really. And I was, I grew up, I grew up in the Northamptonshire. Left school at sixteen, joined the band, and. You know, and that was the beginning of it, really, with my mum taking me with my drums in the back of her car to some pub 
you know, in Northampton to play with some mates, you know, and, and I just would, I just was up for playing with anybody really. And that's kind of how was my birthing into it. So I'm not, I wasn't from a musical family, didn't have a structured approach. It was just, I loved the whole thing. I loved the vibe and I loved listening to everything from reggae and, you know, those old 70s Elton John records and, and, and the American stuff like Bread and Barkley James Harvest, all those things that my dad listened, but also Zeppelin. And, and then of course, late seventies, we had the punk. The punk world that changed it a lot. It hit us, you know, and, and set us off in a new direction. Yes, well it did, it did, definitely wasn't Barkley James Harvest, was it? Because it's interesting, because I did um, an interview with quite, a, I've done yeah, a lot of drummers over, over the years. And there was one who was with Iggy Pop, Hunt Sales, who was in the, you know, he did yeah. The Passenger and Lust for Life. And he was talking about his, because he was a real student of, of the drums. So he was into those people like, um, I haven't made a note here. Oh yeah, Buddy Colin Rich. Bailey, or, or sort of Freddie Gruber and uh, Buddy yeah, Rich yeah. and jazz people like that. He, that's yeah. where he sort of learned a lot of his techniques. So did you have any kind of, tutoring or sort of teachers who or people that you started to try and copy or emulate because he said if it was if he didn't get the right technique he still he wouldn't be drumming today so I just wondered how you managed to sort of learn your craft. No mine was mine wasn't formal it was very organic uh, and, and I mentioned my dad again at one occasion he there was a couple of very specific things I recall. And one was, um, there was a band called McGuinness Flint, Hugh, Huey Flint, who's still around. He, he had, was playing with, um, he played with Eric Clapton's Blues Breakers and stuff like that. And um, I had a, a um, there was a, a couple of coincidental things. One was my dad had one of their, uh, their records, and it was, um, he, 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 my dad was into sports cars and stuff. And he, I, I remember him pulling up outside school and there was this drum fill in this one track, the, who's, the, the, the title I forget right this moment, but it had this fantastic drum thing. And my dad would like drum it out on the steering wheel and go, listen to, listen to that son, listen to that fantastic, <laughs> listen to the rhythm. And, uh, I guess it just alerted me to listening to the drum parts in records. Later on, I met Huey Flynn um, just by a complete coincidence. When I was at boarding school, a friend of mine at the school, his one of his parents, his, his mother was um, uh, dating Huey at the time. Or what, I'm not quite sure whether they were dating or not, but and I met her, him. And I met him briefly one weekend and uh, he encouraged me and I was just so inspired. And I, I just think I looked at that people like that and I listened to stuff. So I, I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't have a drum teacher who was sitting down next to me saying, learn these things. And it wasn't really until uh, my late teens, early twenties that I started to get some real structure I mean, I had a few piano lessons. I had a few trumpet lessons and things like that at school. So a basic understanding of written music. 
So I could I could look at a drum book and work out what a paradiddle was and stuff like that. But I wasn't interested in that. I was I just wanted to be in the band and play. You yeah. know, so I listened to Credence Clearwater and you know and the bands those bands that were around where you could still hear the drum parts very clearly on the record. And of course, uh, I just copied them. I sat in my bedroom and copied what I heard. You know. Like yeah, well, it was interesting. You got you had sisters because I had two older brothers, one much older, well, not much. He was seven years, but he he was really into music. This was in the seventies period, and he was really into the prog rock world. And he also yeah. had a Deep Purple and a Black Sabbath album. And I, I was kind of fascinated because I was quite young, sneaking into his room and playing these records when he wasn't there because he said, "Don't play my records." So I was like, mm, "Interesting." So I was quite fascinated with you know plans like you know Yes and Genesis and Wishbone Ash and Barclay James Harvest. Yeah, and yeah. he also had um, quite early seventies, mid seventies, I suppose, was Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, which I thought was just magical. The side side four had these <laughs> certain. There was a song called Harmony, which I thought was just most the last track on site four which was kind of magical and he also had sergeant pepper which again there was an amazing drum on the uh, there's a track called good morning and this was must be yeah. 73 74 and the beatles had felt like they'd gone years before but they'd only just split up really when i look back at it but that yeah. that drumming by ringo was quite something but yeah. and i was a bit too young for punk but it was kind of as the 80s progressed that the the world of indie pop started to come along so with your kind of slight musical sensibility, plus being at boarding school, how did sort of punk kind of enter into your consciousness? Well, it's funny because you mentioned there a couple of my, uh, that Sergeant Peppers and the the Yellow Brick Road album, there was a, there was a Peter Frampton Comes Alive album, <laughs> and, the, and the, the Deep Purple Made in Japan uh, live album. Th those albums were absolutely critical in my the construction of my development as a, as a young musician I was playing along to that that music and uh, and then of course I just pretty much uh, I'd already left school when punk kind of hit but it was kind of, there was there was a kind of atmosphere developing a kind of rebellion to this sort of comfortable sounds of the mid 70s already emerging before punk and uh, in in a way, punk was cap was given to us in a sort of manufactured package with a whole image and dress code and stuff. But in a way, I I think there it was already emerging in this sort of frustration and anger and po politicized comment in some of the music that was starting to unravel at that time and. So, I was, whilst I was still very young, I didn't really have a, you know, I didn't, wasn't really interested in the kind of psychology and sociology of the whole movement at yeah. all. I, I did, I was more attracted to the fashion, to be honest. To be, uh, it, it, I think on reflection, I, I thought most of the music was a bit basic and not particularly interesting. When you've been listening to some of the richness of, just a few years earlier, it seemed to me that uh, uh, there were a lot of people making it, you know, playing at a very naive level. And even though I was self-taught, I was aspiring to something more than that. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't following a particularly progressive. I was into a bit of the Dixie Dregs and some 
elements of progressive music. Do you remember that? The Dixie Dregs title track that was used on. Um, da, da, da. I can't remember what, the, what it was used on, but there was, you know, and um, things like Rock and Roll by Zeppelin, which was the title of the, you know, the title music for Top of the Pops and stuff like that. Yeah, that was well, that, more that, punk than punk was, you know. In a, well, in I think what, also there's the, the beginning of, um, is it Burn or Fire? Um, she said Burn by Deep Purple or... Um, there's yeah. one where it sounds like there's a sort of rocket going up or some sort of periscope coming up. And is it Price, the drummer, who just comes in with this amazing sort of clatter? Fireball, that's the one. Fireball, right? yeah, yeah. Which is quite an, an amazing intro yeah. to a song. So, yes, those, when you're sort of a 16, no, probably a bit younger, when I was listening to those records by my brother, and I had no idea who they were, because this was the mid-70s, you didn't have the internet, you didn't know anything about the band, you just saw the cover, you put it on. And then mm. you went, blimey, you know, that kind of periscope sound, and then those drums, and then it's like healings, and you know, it's just an ex extraordinary explosion, really. So, yes, um, that, that was that was fun. And also, those songs were quite small compared to the Yes records that my brother also had, like Close to the Edge and uh, Topographic Ocean and Relay. Yeah. And there was, I tell you what, for me, there was, I'd, when I'd left school, I also I joined a Bedford based band called Stranger that later became a, a metal band called Tobruk, which had a little bit of interest and in, uh, um, had a record out that, uh, around that um, that time. But they, <clears throat> that I remember playing with this band right in that sort of early birth of punk time. And we played at the Bedford Civic Hall and I had this big old drum kit and I was, I came on the stage and I had my, my sort of torn, outfit with some safety pins and stuff but we were supposed to be a metal kind of band, heavy band and I remember looking at the audience and they were all male and then I had these three guys in front of me because you're sitting behind the kit at the back of the stage and they all had lycra trousers on and their hair was all uh, um, permed what was the fashion at the time this poodle hairy thing happening and I saw this all-male audience and these three guys in front of me dressed in very kind of uh sexualized outfits with these really tight like I just thought to myself I thought nah it's not it's not quite my thing really I, I was thinking I would I'd, I'd like to play for some girls as well. I was interested in girls. <laughs> I, I just thought this wasn't quite my thing. So it was what I think one of those moments which kind of prompted me to, in terms of the music I was listening to at the time, and I kind of got more and more focused from probably from the Black Sabbath purple kind of interest into that, that stream. And it was that moment that kind of pushed pushed me back out and started thinking about other kinds of music again and wanting to play with different types of people some more. Yes. So as the as the 80s progressed, you know, 79, you know, Margaret Thatcher gets in and then there's that period yeah. of kind of quite a lot of unemployment. There's the Falkland War, then there's the miners' strike. And then, you know, the music scene at that point, you know, you had the sort of the post-punk world of Gang of Four and Magazine and, you know, Public Image Limited. 
and you know early bands like the Nightingales and Marky Smith and the Fall. So there was all that kind of stuff. And then about mm. and then you had the early years of you like U2 and uh, Simple Minds and Julian Coe. But then '83, the Smiths come along, and there's this kind of like right. There's definitely a moment on this now. There's a chapter of what I put as indie pop, you know, which has danced the years of 83 to 87, which is not a completely watertight theory, but that's the years of the Smiths. And there's definitely a scene. And then they break up, ecstasy slightly comes in, things change. The next group of 16 to 18 year olds want their soundtrack. And a bit like I was saying about, you know, the Beatles in 73, it seemed like they were just old men, didn't they? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but, and all that kind of stuff. And, and there's a kind of musical shift again. So how did you navigate kind of the 80s? Because there was also that the world of the producer, because you had that Trevor Horn production sound and the charts, which everyone with the big hair and the shoulder pads and Tommy Pops had lots of balloons, didn't they? And everything was a bit kind of... Mm. musically quite you know Frankie Go the Hollywood and ABC and Duran Duran and um, you know that that kind of dire straight sound which sounds quite really dated now and then you've got the indie scene and the Red Wedge world so what was your 80s like? Well my uh, my 80s was particularly marked by some a couple of very significant events one was I went I had an invitation and went off to California and stayed with some friends of the, my family for a short while, and then broke away and started hanging out on the beat in the beach scene in Orange County, playing in bars, and it was a it was a it was a time that was hugely developmental for my playing because it was really the first time I'd played with really experienced American players who who had um, worked with some household name play you know bands and and that that scene wasn't happening in England in the same way um you know people didn't play for so I I it was the first time I started playing four hours a night five nights a week playing covers which I'd never done before in the in these um uh bars up and down the California coast with the with the, these guys so I it was awakening me to all a whole range of material but also that English scene that you're talking about was very influential in California at that time with the surf boys and all that scene they were interested in the, you know bands like everything from the the, the, the kind of new wave headliners yeah. and uh, you know Joe Jackson and all that kind of world of the uh, Elvis Costello and Madness and all those bands were, so we would play those tunes and also play like Bob Marley tunes and then also play the kind of American top 40 hits as well. So my musical taste was, I mean, uh, what I was connecting with was got quite broad, but at the same time, I was also, um, getting getting into a bit of a lifestyle struggle without going into too much detail um uh, i i was getting involved in destructive behaviors and uh i um and i met some some people of christian faith who were involved in music at that time in 82 eight, so around late 82 and there was what I hadn't, what I didn't know back then was that there was also a kind of new wave 
Christian music scene happening in California. Uh, that um, and and someone who made the, the couple of these people that made friends with me and helped me uh, with with a very transformative season for my life actually. So I, you know, some a lot of the destructive stuff stopped at that point for me, and I found I. I, I kind of rediscovered my a faith perspective for myself within Christianity, and then started getting involved with this this music scene in America. Uh, and I, I went from playing bars uh, to doing sessions in this this studio in Orange County for a whole range of kind of new wave Christian artists, and then got invited to play with a guy called Steve Taylor, who was who at the time was basically at the top of the, the charts in across the United States with a, a Christian version of a kind of Elvis Costello thing. And he his content, it wasn't a worship band and stuff. This guy was doing a kind of, he was, he was a satirist. So he was singing about race issue, topical issues, topical now actually. And, and challenging the the culture of Christianity with his lyrics and stuff like that. In fact, he was he wasn't courting a whole lot of favor from, you know, he was quite controversial. So it was a bit of an honor. And suddenly, I was on the road touring with this artist, in do you know have with with a job working with this guy. And so I was reconnecting with the, that kind of world of music that you're talking about from a distance. Uh, uh, partially because I was, I was, you know, I was living in the United States at the time, and also because uh, I was in a, a sort of parallel culture, moving in a parallel culture for a while. So that that actually didn't last very long before um, I had to return to Britain because of my visa situation, and Steve, I toured. Uh, Britain and Europe with Steve Taylor in 84, 85, headlined a massive uh, festival, which we did a live album for in 85, called Greenbelt. Oh, yes, a, I remember Greenbelt, yeah, which is a, kind of in East Anglia, which I think you yeah. too played at and such bands. Yes, exactly. So there was that sort of link too with, with people of the, the U2 ilk who were kind of... Uh, navigating that path of being in the main mainstream music but also having content that reflected a, a, their faith position in, in poetic terms so it wasn't sort of out now sort of uh praise and worship type band this, these were bands who would who were players in the mainstream uh, language of music um and uh, so i basically I had outstayed my welcome in America, couldn't go back visa-wise. And here I was back in the UK, having sort of had a big life change, found myself working in a in some diff very different setting than I had. But then I was back in Kettering <laughs> without a job. Uh, and that, that, that led me up to the point where I auditioned to, with Pete Murphy, which I can tell you about in a minute. But, yes, well, it was just quite an extraordinary because, yeah. um, because Bauhaus had obviously been this kind of band 
at the moment in the early, well, probably the late 70s and early 80s, didn't they? A bit like Japan, they were just kind of the face, you know, David Sylvie and Pete. And uh, then they did some strange, well, a couple of them did a collaboration with Dave, Delhi's car, Delia's car, no, I can't remember. There was Dally's some... car, Dally's car with... Um... Was it Mick Khan? Mick Khan. Mick Khan, yeah. the legendary Khan. Mick Khan. Yes, and that was art with a capital A, wasn't it? Yes, I remember it was. seeing that on an old grey whistle test and everyone was a bit unsure of what they were doing. And it's like, interesting. Yeah, well, I was going to say that was the 80s. You know, we there was a lot of things because there was also the 4AD label and you had people like Dead Can Dance and the Cocteau Twins and um, This Mortal Coil. So there was a lot of kind of experimental music kind of happening. So there was kind of yeah. room for it, but there was a sort of, I suppose with um, Pete and, and Nick Khan, there was a kind of a, a gothic kind of moment because obviously I think Pete had also become, he was on an advert, wasn't he? For the cassette. Maxell. Maxell Max tape with his, sitting in his chair with his, you know, <laughs> the speaker. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Yes. So so that must have been quite the gig because Pete's a bit like one of those, you know, like, I don't know, like a Morrissey character, one of those iconic front men and could be a woman as well. But, you know, suddenly having this person who's got quite the CV and he's got the fan, that must have been quite a, a number to, to be able to get that one. Well, what happened was I was back in Kettering and a friend of mine, um, a bass player friend of mine from before I'd gone gone to America, he basically was, he he, he approached me and said, look, I'm, you know, he'd got uh, involved with a relationship with a girl who, who'd said, basically, you can have one last audition. If you don't get the job, you know, you've got to get a proper job now. You know, <laughs> he was in that kind of ultimatum situation. Anyway, he said to me, he approached me and said, look, I've got a possible audition for Peter Murphy, uh, you know, the singer for Bauhaus. And I went, oh, no, I'm not interested in Bauhaus. You know what? <laughs> you know, I just thought I'd heard it when in, in California, had someone had played me a record and I, I, it wasn't something I was attracted to. I just thought this is, this is too depressing, you know, and, uh, and uh, but I thought, well, look, I'm not, I still maintain this. I, I love to play and I, I play with anybody kind of attitude. And he said, well, look, I can't, I, I, would you rehearse the parts with me? And if I get the opportunity for us to go as a rhythm section, we could do that. But, I, but they, you know, I don't know whether that's going to happen anyway. So I spent a couple of days just playing with him because so he could get his, uh, get ready for the audition just because we had time on our hands and it was, uh, something we could do and um, ultimately he went for the audition and couldn't uh, and didn't get the part he didn't know that he came back and he said to me look I went for my audition it went quite well and I gave them your number anyway so a few days later he heard that someone else had got the bass player job and I just went you know I thought maybe something will come along for me. Then I got a call from the management saying, would you like to come for an audition? Well, the, the, the bizarre thing about the situation was my drums were still in the United States because they would, you know, I had been, uh, uh, ref, my visa couldn't get extended and I still had all, a ton of my stuff was out there. Um, 
And so I said, yeah, I'd love to do it. Love to do the audition. They gave me a date, which was about a week or 10 days away or something like that. Then in the meantime, I get this peculiar phone call from a, an old friend of mine in California who said, who I had no idea, his grandfather was an English guy and had died and there was going to be a funeral. And he said, look, Turl, I, I've got to come with my mum to the funeral and I've had the idea. I can bring your drums, pack a load of all your stuff inside the drums and bring them on because you could bring them on airplanes back there. And just bring it, bring it back. If you were, if when, if we, if when we land in England, you could drive me down to call. So I borrowed my mum's car, <laughs> picked it, hit this guy and his mum and my drums up at, at Heathrow, drove him down, drove them down to Cornwall, and then drove home and had my drums. And it was like two days later, I had the audition with Pete. So in at three one three in Islington, at that you know under the arches. So I got down there with my kit, set it up, and I hadn't had my kit for months and months. And it was like, so I was so glad to get my gear back. I sat down, I was playing, just drumming my heart out, so happy to have my drums back there in the studio. Little did I know that Pete, Peter Murphy and Howard Hughes, who was his MD on, uh, for the band initially, were outside the room. And basically they walked in and they said, we've heard been listening to you playing. We'd like to offer you the job. Wow. Yeah, I know. That that's exactly, that's gospel truth. That's exactly what happened. And um, so we talked about it and I said, well, what's it going to entail? What we, you know, we had this little chat and, you know, and I told them I was very, because I was quite new in my kind of religious experience at the time. So I was you know, I was quite, um, I, I, I wasn't press, perhaps navigating that particularly subtly at the time, you know, and I was, I was like saying, well, you know, I believe this and, you know, is there going to be an issue with, you know, song lyrics and stuff? And, and actually Peter was really respectful, you know, and I, he had his own, very much his own spiritual kind of influences and views on things. Um, but he was very respectful and said, no, that's not going to be, I don't see that being a problem. And, you know, and so we entered into this thing. So I joined the band. Next thing I know, we're rehearsing and uh, at uh, John Henry's in Caladine Road. And then we're a bang, we're off, you know. Yes. And it's, um, I mean, it's quite interesting because to be honest, I've never been a big Bauhaus fan, but I've really loved those, those albums that, the, the hundred men were being on because you know you go you go from there's love hysteria isn't there yeah and, and then the classic one which I think classic deep which just seems to really come together you yeah. must be so pleased with that those three records that you did with Pete because it does sound like such yeah. an amazing band and and the production and the vocal and the the quality of the whole and the songwriting I just think is exquisite so. It must have felt like quite a, a, a kind of gift at that point in life. You know, David, I think we we were all, I mean, we were all very young guys, but we were absolutely 100%. We gave ourselves 100% to the music we were making. 
And the fact that we were, Peter was and is a brilliant and interesting and unusual character. You know, he's, he, he's not an uncomplicated personality, as you probably know, but he, he, uh, he was br a brilliant, brilliant front man. And we, the chemistry between us and the diverse influences, because Eddie, who I spoke to recently, who I absolutely love to bits, you know, he, he'd come out of the UK decay and the punk scene. And I had this, all this, this slightly more American influence approach to my playing, Paul from B Movie. And I'd met B Movie in Huntington Beach in California a couple of years earlier. I'd been to, I'd been in the band, our band had opened up for them. So I'd actually mm -hmm. met Paul and Steve Hovington and those guys. And I just thought they were great. I loved their, their what they were about. And, and what and, and the that's like you know that sort of Midland Sheffield kind of they were lads you know and then of course Pete Bonus who was like um, he was like the the Joker in the pack because he 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 was a little bit older than us very very experienced musician had played with some lots of incredible people have done some incredible sessions and uh, just a beautiful player but also such a positive influence in in the in the chemistry of this this group and we we just came together and it was it just the chemistry was fantastic and over those you know we went out and played and did those tours and the energy that Pete Murphy the electricity that he brought into us and plugged us into was in, intense it was it was an incredible few years it you know it was it it was intense on lots of different levels but it was we we i think we all reflect now and look at it and go, well we were really we had something really special actually yeah yes, yeah i can imagine and when did you decide to call yourselves a name within the band or within the <laughs> <laughs> I think um, there's some, I don't, to be honest, I don't remember the, the, the there's, there's a sort of hearsay story that we were called 100 men because we were given 100 quid a week uh, as a retainer by the record company. And I, I don't know whether that came from uh, the management or from Pete Murphy or, or one of the band jo joking about. We were, we had this tussle historically with um, Peter's management because it of course it was it was in Peter's name it was Peter's project it was Peter's band but we we were never we always felt like we weren't given you know treat, treat treated with the so that yeah. the kind of hundred men had a slightly it was a bit like um we didn't never quite knew whether it was a compliment or an insult. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose it's a little bit like has a bit of a parallel to David um, Bowie and Ziggy Stardust and his band of, you know, Woody, Trevor and um, Mick yeah. Johnson, you know, those, those kind of guys who helped create so much, but then were not quite, you know, probably felt they were part of that. I mean, it was a little bit of a different story because, you know, David was starting out himself, whereas Peter being a bad but 
where does everyone sit? And no one really has the wisdom at that stage to have a proper sit down and a discussion about, you know, all that kind of the admin world of it all really, isn't it? It just kind of flows along probably from one day in a gig and recording session to another, and then it sort of gets a bit tricky if it goes on. But tricky, isn't it? Well, that's right. And we, I mean, we went, we've had lots of conversations between us within the band ever since of the trying to work out that it's a, because it's kind of like it is a really intense relationship you're thrown into you're on the road together you're working closely together you're you're still in a very much a developmental stage as a young adult you know discovering life and the four of us uh, all of including Pete uh, were didn't have uncomplicated backgrounds you, you know, and I sometimes have these conversations with young musicians today, you know, who who have a focused approach to being a professional and, a, you know, developing a career as music. Back then, we, we were rock and rollers. We were anti-establishment, not because we were, uh, you know, destructive people or rebellious in a, in a, in a nasty way, but we carried a spirit between us that was... Um, that drove us. We were compelled to make art and do things against good common sense in a way. And the yeah. fact that we found a chemistry, like a lot of bands, that that was connecting with an audience and meant something to people, uh, it, it drove the whole thing and gave us opportunity to do it. But we would, you know, we were young guys. Like you say, we did, it was before the opportunity to really sit down and work out how much we needed each other we didn't know we loved each other yeah until many years later you know <laughs> I th well I think that is true I think you, you you just assume that the moment is going to last but then you realize all things pass a bit and that becomes the past and yeah. and I, you know yes yeah, so I suppose I find that doing this show is that looking back I've sort of discovered bands that I missed the first time because you just couldn't you know, especially in the 80s, you couldn't sort of get to hear and, you know, be able to access everything. You know, if you sort of heard about a record, it's different to actually hearing it. And you just, sometimes there was yeah. no way of actually hearing a record that a journalist says, oh, this is going to be amazing. You're thinking, brilliant. How do I get to hear it? <laughs> it was like, yeah. go to a record shop and, you know, they can go, no, I have never heard of that. Mate. And you go, brilliant. That's not <laughs> helping me at all, you know. And then you just, and that just goes. And then, you know, you know decades later, you can you know, sometimes rediscover some of these things, but you know, you, you realise that during that period of the 80s, like anything, you know, most bands have a five-year narrative that I've found that, you know, you get together, they have 12 months, the honeymoon, you know, especially this period, you know, the, you know, a single John Peel play, a John Peel session, the first album, everything's going well, the second album's a bit tricky, then by, if they get to the third album, you know, everything's kind of slightly, the wheels are falling off, you know, the dynamics, and most bands have that five years and then they move on and then I think just forget it. And then sometimes look back, actually that was quite good. We did have something special. We just didn't know how to sort of cope with it. Once once the kind of rocket takes off, you know, you're just on it, aren't you? Just going, mm, this is interesting. Where are we yeah, going next? Right. So it's, a, it's right. an interesting one. But can you remember then on, on that front when cuts you up because that's one of those songs that probably everyone mentions but you know it's such a classic song and decades later now it still sounds incredible I mean can you remember much about when that came together well yeah I mean 
I remember I literally I actually recall sitting in the studio in um, uh, Rockfield in Monmouth. I think we were in uh, with with uh, Simon Rogers produced that album. If I've got that right in my memory, and uh, we I remember playing that part on the the track. You know, um, with those tom fills at, at the end. It's interesting because I revisited the track last year. At this time last year, I did an, a drum for NHS uh, drumathon with some with a whole group of other drummers, and pulled out some of these tracks that I'd done over the years and played played to the track as a kind of performance online for to, you know for the charity, and and playing that tune brought those memories back and playing it because actually those your you know those albums had some very strong pop style structures and shape to the to the tunes and and that was one and of course it was a massive massive hit particularly in america i i loved it i felt i you know i was very fond of playing that and all night long and you know those hit songs they were great and when we played them live we played them with a real you know with all of that 80s 100 percent passion we never nothing held back i remember just you know when i played those things it was never wasn't sitting there like you know <laughs> it was you know i just i remember pouring everything into it every time i yes. love it so obviously, I mean, during that period, I mentioned, you know, there'd been the world of the ecstasy kind of scene, then the Seattle scene came along during yeah. sort of the 90s, very early 90s, with Nevermind, obviously that had a huge yeah. influence. And then your, your third album, this is the last one that you do as, as the sort of the band. Did it feel like by then you were aware that things had changed again, the dynamics had sort of altered when you went to record that one? Um. I tell you what I remember very, very specifically about that that era, and I don't, I can't recall the exact dates, but we we were touring in America. We played in Los Angeles at the, I think the Universal Amphitheater, you know, big big gig. Uh, we were kind of at the top of our tree at the, that time, and uh, then the Rodney King event happened the race riots in los angeles with the police beating of a yeah. black guy and there was always this explosive uh a, a social event and what i knew we'd been touring doing sheds and we'd been touring with an, a group of bands nine inch nails trent reznor and those guys not had been an opening act that year or earlier that year for, for us. And we've been double headlining with people like Henry Rollins and people like that. And what we started to see was there were American bands who were doing what we did. And I, you know, I'm sure there was always was, but but when I say doing what we did, they they were playing with that kind of level of deeper level of of frustration and, and ex at that some anger, not not ugly anger, but 
but anger at, at injustice and in the world. Yeah. And, and, and that seemed, to, I, I feel like I started to notice that. And it was like, there wasn't a punk American scene really in the same, like all those bands you're talking about in the eighties, whilst many of them were, were, were kind of key figures in the pop world, they were, there, was, there was this thread of a political voice of frustration of, of hope for something different in the world in, within it all. You know, mm. and, and, and it was reflected in the fashion, it was reflected in the sound, it was reflected in the stories, whether they were singing the love stories, you know, and and we hadn't really seen that in America in the same way. They were still, you know, big parts of America still listening to the Eagles and, you know, <laughs> and, and uh, I think at that time, what happened that night, the Rodney King riot, we got on a plane in Los Angeles and flew to the East Coast and to do a massive, uh, a big MTV event at the Limelight in New York. And what I recall was we got off the plane, went into the hotel, turned on the telly and Los Angeles was burning. You know, there were all these scary images on the TV of these riots. And I remember thinking in, myself and with my faith and all those elements at work in my assessment of it what is going on what's the world coming to and we played that show and then we went back to england and then the next thing i realized was i saw uh, nirvana on letterman or, or or some maybe i'd seen it in america i can't remember exactly but i i nirvana launched and it suddenly occurred to me, America had found their, their voice, mm. theirs. And it was like, they didn't, and, and it's almost like, the, going back to your question about doing that album, it's almost like in my memory, and I don't know, I haven't got a thesis for this, but I feel as if, you, Amer young American bands suddenly had their own voice and culture for what the British bands were doing. We would all come over, the Cure and the Cult, the Church and all these golf bands and all these rock bands. We were coming over from Europe, from England, playing and touring all over America. And our audience suddenly took their eyes off us and they had their own people. Yes. You know so what I mean? Had, yeah, because you suddenly had all those bands with, you know, men with check shirts, long, the long hair, the Jack yeah. Daniels, you know, and the grinding sort of Soundgarden, Alison Chains, and suddenly it's like, oh, yes. You but then mosh pits, they didn't have mosh pits in, you know, and all that kind of, yeah. that, that concert culture that we, was happening at our events. You know, Pete Murphy was always quite, you know, there was always this tension between audience and stage with with our gigs and so and that wouldn't have happened in in a kind of music appreciation society in in your yeah. general you know but suddenly and it wasn't as simple as the kind of brian adams you know the middle middle class america having a a kind of suitable voice for their i don't yeah. know you know what i'm saying i don't i I've got to be careful because I don't want to be rude about any group and I don't mean to be. I, I'm just, 
sort of the, the I'm fascinated by this this journey, this sociological journey that the music took and our place in it at that point in history and what was happening, what we were facilitating with that set the sound we were making. And I'm still passionate about it. I'm still passionate about the authenticity of sound and the authenticity of music and its its value politically and socially and uh, its commentary. And, and, and in a way, that era really captured a, a, a gave, gave people a real place for that, that in some ways feels a little bit missing currently. I, and I hope maybe, um, you know, I was having a conversation with someone the other day who was just saying, I think, you know, maybe, maybe just there might be a new, they might, yeah, I, I think a new a, movement. I think there could be. There's a, there's, the last few years have given us a lot of kind of things to think about. So, well, we've you, been very, yeah, go on. I was going to say, so when you went into the studio to do Holy Smoke, yeah, did yeah. that feel like, did you, like with a lot of bands, they often know this is probably going to be the last album. You know, there was, a, there's the writing is on the wall and it's like, yeah. So sometimes the experience can be a bit hit and miss. Sometimes it's often a little bit resigned to, yeah, you know, we just, we're not going to, you know, when this is done, we can, we can all walk away. Did you, was that a similar vibe with, with, you know, your combo? I think um, we were, we were at a, a good place musically, chemistry-wise, and I remember do, in doing Holy Smoke. I remember uh, there there was a uh, the Low Room that track on that that album, which is my favourite track on that album. Is um, Pete had this idea for it, and we'd gone into John Henry's, and we were working up the tunes as a band actually before recording them, and I. The, this tune hadn't got legs at that point. And I remember I'd been listening to Captain Beefheart's Clear Spot album, which is, of course, a completely different era and everything else. But I, I, it was an, it's an album I still love the sounds and the, the, the production on it. And did, it I'd John, sit, did it have John French on? Was that John French on that one? I, uh, to be honest, I, I don't know, maybe. Um, it was, it's, Clear Spot stands out. It's, it's probably the most pops uh, beef I ever got. And actually, in some ways, it was, there's some, a little bit of a parallel with the kind of deep album and, you know, in, in the stream of, uh, of work. Um, but I remember citing uh, a, a, one of the tracks off the Beef Heart album, as a suggestion rhythmically for the for that track for, for for the low room and us doing it and working it out and uh and i thought i thought we were really going somewhere with this album but then you're absolutely right there was an also and that's really why i told that other story i think about this sort of sense of the timing the timeline for a lot of bands english bands I think there was a, we sensed something was changing. The culture was changing, sounds was changing. There were, you know, a, the whole rap world had started to become, 
become a very popular form and it hadn't really been so before then. Yes. Um, and I think, and there was also complications within our setup. You know, there was a breakdown in, in management communication. I don't know what you probably, from the conversations with the other boys, I don't know how uh, <laughs> yeah, outspoken I, people have been, but there was, you know, there was um, there were some significant issues there in the relationships with management, and um, and some sides were taken and stuff, and there was some complicated stuff, and it was really at that point I I knew it was time to leave. Yeah, did I, you I took I took the jump. Oh, did, so you you did the album? Did you do the tour as well, or did you just? I don't know. I didn't. I never did the tour after that. So I left. Uh, so I, if I've got, I mean, it's a long time ago to remember the actual sequence of events. But ninety two, uh, I left the band. Uh, we'd finished. I think maybe I did a one, the first part of a tour, the Holy Smoke tour, American tour. But I'd already told Pete I was leaving. There were some discrepancies in the way the management were handling some of the uh, some of the contractual stuff, and I couldn't accept it. I, it would it was unacceptable, in yeah. my opinion. And so I'd said to Pete, "I'm really sorry. I can't. You know, this isn't right business wise, and I'm leaving." If, but I, I know that, um, I mean, this is not gossip at all, but I know that Pete, I did, you know, when I spoke to Pete about it, on phone, um, he said that um, the tour, actually, by the end of the tour, the song sounded great from the album. The, they sounded better than the record, and if they could have then recorded yeah. the album, that would have, yeah. it would have been brilliant. But, you know, it was just, he just said that it was better by the end of the they got the sound better, so um, yeah, it wasn't, that's not gossip. Actually, <laughs> that's just his kind of no, no you know, creative thing, really. You know, yeah, so, uh, well, definitely, they're definitely. You know, the more we play, and I think that's true of all of the albums, actually. I mean, whilst uh, Simon Rogers' uh, production of the of the Deep album was, was a great and is a great studio album to listen to, I don't think you're right. Holy Smoke didn't stack up. Uh, in, at the same level as an album, and and uh, I think that observation is absolutely right. You know, we once we played it in, yeah. If if we'd had Rogers back to produce it, then it could have it might have been something very a very different picture altogether. Yes, I think I think the missing Simon Rogers is a bit like the Beatles missing. Oh God, I can't remember oh, the manager now, but you know, the, you know, all know the producer of their records. I think it was that kind of. He was quite an integral yeah. part of the the kind of the first two records, wasn't he? Basically, yeah. George Martin. George Martin, that's the one. <laughs> so then the nineties, obviously, yeah. you you know, you another chapter. So just briefly, I mean, this is kind of an interesting period because obviously this Brit pops are kind of exploding, and then you know we'd had the suddenly the John Major years, and then New Labour, and suddenly again culturally things shift like you said there is kind of Marilyn Manson there's the kind of rap things there's that whole world of Jimmy Iovine and that American world of like mega deals and mega bucks and stuff like that so and and yeah sort of 
Marilyn Manson on one side and Oasis and Blur on the other. So it's kind of an interesting time and lots of money sloshing around. Well, how did you then navigate your kind of the 90s and then sort of onwards? Yeah, well, what happened with me was I, once I'd left Pete's band, I had an invitation to join an, uh, a band called Iona, which was a progressive band with Celtic um, sort of folkish influenced. So it's a kind of progressive folk project, but it was also um, uh, the group was largely Christian influenced. So there was, it had that kind of those links and the poetic lyrics. And it was, a, to be honest with you, in many ways, it was a huge breath of fresh air. Um, in one sense, it was a big step. It was a massive change because I was no longer on a retainer with a major label. I was working with a cottage industry type band. Um, but things would work completely different. You know, all the publishing was equally split. There was a real democracy within the group. We were making music that was absolutely beautiful and uncompromised, you know, and, and our, our label for that band really were putting us under pressure to make music that conformed more to their idea of what Christian music should sound like. And we refused that. So there was still that, that authenticity within the group of yes. the, pe the people who were involved. In a, albeit a different, very different culture from Pete's goth world. Of <laughs> but but um, so I, I basically, for the next eight, six or eight years, I was in that band, Iona. We made five albums, uh, some critically acclaimed music in there. And, uh, uh, and we toured... It, uh, uh, quite a lot in Europe, and we still did some of the further afield. We went to America a few times. In fact, we 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 became also we were uh, at that stage of life. I had a young family, I had small children, and uh, we were basically uh, by one of the big American labels. We were promised the big time because Iona was was such a special project, and. Uh, we had to turn it down because we'd already agreed between, in fact, talking about those conversations you were talking about, we'd had much more mature and respectful conversations about our, our involvement and how we would work together. And one of the f things we'd agreed to do was not go away for months and months on end with our young, you know, leaving our families behind and our, recognizing the consequences that would have on our children. So. So they were tough decisions and we we never achieved what labels had said we could achieve because we didn't actually go and work it in the same way. But at the same time, David, during those years, I was also really doing lots of sessions for different, different artists and I continued to do stuff with, you know, and I ended up working with, uh, Steve Levine, the producer Steve Levine, and doing lots of pop music, British pop music, which I'd not really hadn't, you know, I'd been a live player and played in these rock bands. And this was quite a new thing, playing with bands like Louis, you know, on Louise, who was Louise Nerding back then, before Red Nap. 
yes. and Sonia and 911 and all a whole string of the honeys. Do you remember that album in the, uh, there was a, Finally Found was a big hit in the middle, late nineties. And I played on that and did all, so I did loads and loads of pop stuff, was doing Iona and ended up touring with Roddy Frame, which was a real joy from um, uh, Aztec Cameras. That's it, yes. Roddy Frame, beautiful, beautiful guy, lovely songwriter. And uh, yeah, so my, my life changed from, from the intensity of the hundred men years to, to doing a mixture of sessions and doing this band Iona, which I left towards the end of the nineties um, and uh, continued to work freelance until I got invited to do the John Paul Jones work at the end of the nineties, which was extraordinary, um, wonderful two or three years working with John and Nick Beggs from Kajagoogoo. Yeah, amazing, amazing combination of musicians. Because yeah. I, I mean, I just remember being on the school bus here in, you know, Too Shy and thinking, well, I mean, you know, they, and, and you know, I, I sort of have come across Nick, you know, just on various, you know, social media pages. But yes, he, he's quite the musician, isn't he, an artist. So it's quite an incredible, yeah, you know, no, no way would one sort of could see from Too Shy to where he's kind of ended up, which is quite incredible. You never really realise that people, some of the musicians are absolutely brilliant and um, some probably aren't even plugged in. Well, that's right. And uh, it's, a t it's, it's really, it, it's a comment on how we pigeonhole people based on the way they look and, 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 and the sort of culture we see them moving. We don't realise they've got, and Begsy is, he's a phenomenal musician, actually. And, um, uh, you know, he's been touring with Pete Wilson and that project for, you know, in recent years, lots. And, and people have just always thought of him as, you know, like you say, the Kajagoogoo pop guy. Yeah, I know. It's unfortunate, isn't it, really? Uh, but it was very brave of John. Well, not brave, but but um, John Paul Jones having the fearless approach not to be put off by that with you know, having Begsy in and, and myself too, who hadn't really perhaps got the same uh, level of, of credibility in the same circles, rock yeah. circles, you know. Because what's quite interesting, and you, you're sort of part of that, you know, the world that have sort of stayed with music all your life, a bit like yeah. you know, people like David Bowie or Lemmy, and you know, I always because they, they they didn't have plan b did they those guys they were going to do music or nothing but you've got to done the the sort of being a musician being in bands as well as oh, we've got the plastering um as well as um yes coupling it with kind of giving tuition or doing other session work as well because i know from you know i'm um, talking to your other bandmate he, he you know he's he's a lecturer now for several colleges on several courses so it must yeah. be quite an interesting experience now sort of learning how to use or be a musician and a creative person but knowing the responsibilities of having you know family you know bills and all the other things so so yes how did how did you manage to sort of navigate that kind of transition um <clears throat> i think I I didn't want to um, I didn't want to cop out on, in terms of life's 
responsibilities. But I never wanted to also wanted to compromise the, um, the, the gift that I've seen music be for myself and for many others. And I think I never looked at music as a pastime. I looked at it as an, as, and, and the arts essentially, I, I, I see them as an absolute core um, element of, of for, for the human race. You know, I see, I view song and songwriting and lyrics and the expression of authenticity in music as absolutely essential for the human soul. And for me, <clears throat> I, I've always tried to avoid it being too, you know, to, to be non-judgmental about the, uh, from an agendered point of view, you know, from a place of my, the journey of my faith, you know, lots of people have challenged me over the years of why, why would I play with certain people who sing songs about things that are, would, would conflict with their ideologies and stuff like that. But I've, I think giving the human race uh, vehicles to really express the heart language of, of, of that humans of all cultures walk is absolutely fundamentally important. It's crucially important for, for the human race in all its different cultures to have that uh, vehicle. And so I've never wanted to compromise that. And I don't play drums from the, you know, it started out as a selfish quest as a little young boy with a drum kit and, you know, all that. But I think even right from the early days, this, those songs, when I heard, I remember sitting in, you know, with my my empty house as a small boy. And I've taken uh, uh, Simon and Garfunkel's album with Bridge Over Troubled Water on, I put it on my dad's stereo. And I heard that song as a you know, 10 year old, a 12 year old. I probably wasn't even allowed to touch the record player, but I put it on and I heard it. It gave me life, you know, that story in it, the promise in it, the, the not just the lyrical meaning, which I didn't, you know, as a small kid, it, it doesn't have <laughs> the depth of, it, of meaning it does now, but the, those the sound, the heart language of it, and so much, so many, so many different kinds of music have done that, and it's done it with. There were moments in in Pete's music in the Hundred Men that did that, and all the different bands I've worked with, with Barbara Dixon, with you know, Iona and all sorts of people from very different styles of music. Uh, I've seen that and known that. And, and so it's, a, it's, for me, it's been a balance. Th those things have never, it's never been a career choice. You know, it's absolutely, it's a major, major struggle for us. As you know, for people you talk to, artists to make a living and, you know, anybody who's in it just for the money or just to win a competition, like all of the, the, these, you know, the programs like The Voice and these things that give people a platform and you get these important people assessing whether you, you're good enough. To me, whilst I'm not, I don't have a huge, uh, I'm not anti all that. I just think it, the whole thing runs a lot, lot deeper than that. And it does for me. And I'm absolutely 100% committed to 
the ongoing flow of that stream. And I think it's a gift. I think it's such a tremendous, tremendous gift uh, that should never be. I heard someone say, uh, I was on some podcast I was listening to a few weeks ago. They said they broke the word responsibility up into two, two words, response, ability. And they said most people think about responsibility as the burden of what all the things you have to do that you don't really want to have to do. But going through life, taking responsibility is really to do with your ability to respond to what. And, and, and I thought this is so beautiful because actually this is what artists carry is the ability to respond to the language of the heart and, and bring that to the table and give it to people in a way that helps them in the journey of life. For goodness sake, it ain't easy whether you're <laughs> in the corporate world or whatever world you're in, is it? No, you know, no. and everybody's barking their at full volume right now, politically and socially and all the rest of it. And I, uh, my hunger is that people, artists would stay brave and stay in the game and keep keep giving us what we need, you know. Yes. So just then on going forward again, I mean, what's what are you hoping or planning for the next 12 months, you know? I mean, it's really tricky because we still don't really know, do we? But, you know, are you, you know, you obviously brought out quite a few solo albums. I just wondered if playing live is something that you just love to be doing that again. Because it's interesting when you were talking about going to America and playing, because I did an interview with, and there was a guitarist, Fast Eddie, who was in Motorhead. But before that, he was in one of those bands that you just kind of was a gun for hire, but you'd play every night. And he said that's when you really learn how to play an instrument, not just in your bedroom doing it, but you know, every night yeah. he played one of these old, old timers who just kind of wanted a guitarist and he was there and you just kind of improved. And I suppose it's a bit like, you know, on a simplistic level, the Beatles going to Hamburg, wasn't it? You just, you realize putting in a shift every evening and probably twice a day, you know, you're going to get better or you're going to give up, but one way or the other, you know, if you come out of that, that's your apprenticeship. And you obviously, that must have felt like an apprenticeship. And I've, I've done interviews with various people who, I mean, funny enough, a lot of them have been drummers who went into being producers, like this guy called Mark Saunders, who just sort of was a drummer, was in bands going nowhere, became this producer, but again, did his apprenticeship and then got the kind of a break. And so playing live must feel like this is when you can really start to make things kind of happen again. Yeah, there's a, you've touched on various things in, the, in, in that. I mean, I've... I've my studio here. I'm involved in a number of projects, and I'm involved, uh, you know, in a broad range of things. From teaching, I, I actually do production course with a with a college in Pakistan, you know, and I do, and I'm working with two different some different artists, some you know, a couple of people who are much much younger than myself. I'm also putting stuff out under my own name, and I'm seeking to I'm just working at developing my own production skills this last year has really given me a chance to work on that my I've got some better gear in my studio like gear you know for recording and learning to produce is a, is a big learning curve from just sitting behind a drum kit and playing but going back to what you that thing of of what happens when you play when you tour uh, there's absolutely nothing like it you know there's 
literally nothing like what happens to you when you play a set of music songs, you know, for an hour and a half or a couple of hours every night, four or five nights a week on tour for a series of weeks. You know, nowadays a tour is called, they call it a tour when you do five dates or something, you know, it's not a tour. A tour, you know, when we, back in the day, in the eighties, you were talking about it, we, we, it was 12 weeks or something. We would do like 30, 40 or more dates. In fact, if you're in a hard rock band, you'd probably do twice that. Yeah. And, um, but what happens when you do a long string of dates is you get deeper and deeper into it and you get fitter and more focused and clearer on every level, the sound, the feel, the motion, the gaps, the spaces, the air, the production, the sound in the room, all those things. And you're, you're doing something with a group of people where that chemistry becomes even more, it's like cooking the same meal over and over again. You get, you get much highly attuned into, you know, how much salt you put in, how much pepper you put, you know, all the ingredients, a bit more of oil, little, you know, everything becomes more and more focused. As long as the, as long as the relational aspect is, is, is working okay, even, even if it can be a bit tense off stage, as it, so, you know, sometimes it was with the, the hundred men, you know, with Pete and stuff, when we came together to do that thing, it just got more and more and more and more intense and more and more and better and better. And, um, there's nothing that exchanges that. I miss that, you know, I miss the, the fitness of how you feel, physically feel, you know, as a drummer, when you, I did, I did, I had this one guy, young guy who was, came to me and he said, I've just got this gig with this band. He was going out with a quite well-known band and he came to me and he said, look, I've never done a tour like this before. I've done a string of a handful of dates, but I've never done, I said, what do you do? And I said, well, come on, let's go into the rehearsal room. And I'd, I'd get him behind the drums and I'd say, now, okay, for three minutes, we're going to play at 140 BPM and make him like play as hard as he, I go, I'd be shouting at him, louder, harder, louder, harder. And then as soon as he'd stop, I'd say, get off, now do 20 push-ups. <laughs> Then as soon as he finished, I said, get back on the kit, do it again. <laughs> because I remember that that's what you physically you'd have to muster up stuff that you you just don't get. You don't get that at college. You won't learn it from the the anywhere else except on, on the road doing it. So it's all of that stuff. And I I miss that. I love that. I mean, I got a call. A few weeks ago, I'm going to be touring with Barbara Dixon next year uh, in 2022. So first, that'll be the first proper tour for me, getting back out. And it's a, it's a year from now. So it'll be two years of out of live, pretty much completely out of live stuff. And I, to be honest, I'm so excited yes. to be doing that. I mean, she's an absolute gem. Yeah, and so is the band. It won't be, but it. <laughs> no, but it's 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 those things you look forward to. Yeah. But I just, I mean, just be on just two things. I don't. I must admit, the strange thing is, the last about three interviews I've done with people, and one was a drummer. Actually, the other one was a drummer as well, and and one was a singer. 
I mean, they all, unfortunately, they got, they all basically had heroin addictions by the end of their, their very short time in music. You must feel, looking back, that you were just really lucky you had to avoid that, hitting, a, you know, living in a car, basically, and then having to eventually get to rehab. You must almost think, wow, that, that moment where you just found your faith just saved you a lot of time and grief and living in cars. Yes, it did. Yes, it absolutely did. And you hear those stories from very well-known big names from, you know, Steve Gadd or Eric Clapton or whoever, people who have gone on that destructive journey. And I lost friends in my teens and my early 20s to drug addiction. And I've seen many later go downhill in different ways. And um, you're absolutely right. That 1983, coming to faith, or, or, you know, or the reawakening of my faith, because I had a little bit of input as a small boy from my mum, you know, was absolutely saving for me in, on that journey. You're absolutely right. Because I had, um, I had dabbled. And the, some of the stuff that was going on that I alluded to was in that realm. It was very yes. destructive. And uh, being rescued from that, uh, Yes, yeah. that was that was I amazing. am very, very thankful for that. And yeah. also I have to be, you know, I have to be honest, you know, later on, at the time when I met my my girlfriend, who later become my wife, we've been married for almost 30 years now. We have six children. They're all, all my children are, are are in a good place mentally, I think. You know, as far as you can tell, they they're wonderful. This unit is all a gift of that journey of avoiding those destructive. I think, you know, I sometimes we sometimes have a conversation in our household. What, you know, none of this would have happened had I continued on that path. So, yes, it's quite extraordinary. I mean, you know, you just think, oh, that's not good, you know, and it's kind of one of those <laughs> moments. I mean, what always amazes me was that Lemmy was so anti heroin you know even though he obviously did everything else but he just he had a really focused, he knew. You know, I, I just you know even though at the time I think it was so cheap and there but he was amazing for that which I always think which is quite yeah. I mean, just lastly I mean if you could have I mean you sound like you probably but if you were to able to say anything to your 16 or 18 year old self starting out in your creative, creative path you did. I mean, was there anything else that you would have just sort of whispered in their ear as, as you kind of started knowing what you've known throughout these decades of kind of experience and the ups and downs that goes with life? My, my um, I think my philosophy is rooted in the simple term grace. You know, grace to me is, is recognising that the gifts you've given, the opportunities, the relationships, the place you place of birth. I mean, for example, for us being locked down in West Sussex in a rural setting, I, we have to say there's what could we possibly complain about? We could, you know, we've got fields to walk in. We've been given so much. And I, I view it as again going with that that simple term the, the the responsibility your ability to respond to the, what you've been given so that I, i'm big on that you know grace 
so I, I, uh, I try, I would say to them, you know, to just try and avoid where, where, where relationship falls down, pursue the grace in it, you know, make amends, forgive people, don't hold grudges, don't be a whole grudge holder. Don't go around slagging people off and slating other people. There's so much of that, isn't there, out there? There's such free will to, to bark opinions everywhere about. Don't be that person. You know, bark, but bark, make a noise that cheers people yes. up, or bring some hope and encouragement into the world. You know, that's all. That's my thing to everybody. You know, it's non judgment. Yes. It's, you know obviously there is real nasty stuff going on around the world and that's it's not about being tolerant of of real vile things speaking out about that but but make your noise a good noise yeah. a noise well, a hopeful noise you know? well it's interesting speaking to a lot of musicians actually everyone is is very i mean because everyone's had that up and down and and i think now we're in a space where they're just very humble, really, you know, realizing that like, we have been quite lucky. You know, it's a shame we didn't sometimes read this sort of paperwork and sign a slightly better deal. But, you know, but generally, you know, I feel quite, you know, still enjoying making music, even though it's going to be slightly differently received than it was when, you know, they were possibly doing it decades earlier. But I always remember I went to one of those Tony Robbins things, you know, those kind of weekend yeah, workshops, yeah. and he said, change your expectation for appreciation, your life will feel like a miracle. I always thought it was a good one, actually. Change your expectation for appreciation. That's a, that's a real nugget. Yes, yeah, so then you just think, you know, then you give thanks to everything that you, you know, from the, putting the kettle on to pulling the chain of the toilet, you know, you just think, oh, wow, thanks, you know, give thanks to everything. And you think, Someone's had to do lots of work to sort all that out. You know. That's, do you know, that's what I saw in Pete Bonus when we joined, when we came together as a hundred men. That was one of the key things at the beginning. Was he? That was his kind of response to everything was appreciation. Because I'd been living in America, where people were, they have a tendency to speak more of a language of positivity and hope, or at least they did in, in the <laughs> early eighties. But and, and England was so cynical. People, everybody was, you know, I used to say to people, you know, if in America, people go, oh, man, what, so what do you do? And I go, I play drums. And they go, wow, that's amazing. Do you play in a rock band? Can we come and see you? You must be brilliant, you know. And it's the equivalent conversation in, in Great Britain was like, so what do you do? I, I play in a band. They go, oh, yeah. <laughs> 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 and, and actually you're right you know appreciation there's yes. a whole long way <laughs> well look way. this has been yeah. amazing well thank you ever so much and if you want i can always send you um a link to this and then you can always Please. use it and uh you know people love hearing these interviews so that's cool but thanks again and um look have a great day and look forward to the future let's hope it's a good one and yeah uh, bye um, David, yeah. great talking to you. Thank okay. you very much. No All problem. Right. Look, take care. See of you later. All the bears. Bye bye. There you go. I love leaving that bit in because it's always so fumbly. Anyway, that was me in conversation with Tal Bryant talking about life, love, poetry, well, basically music and life. 
So uh, that was it. A big thank you to Tell for giving me the interview. And um, yes, if you want to contact me for some random reason, as long as it's nice, just uh, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show, you'll locate me. And also all these interviews have been archived on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. There you go, that's it. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.